that you attract the angelic hosts. And I believe they come into a room where they feel like a piece of the kingdom is here. Uh, they're attracted to worship. I believe they come to it like a moth to a flame that when worship happens, we attract heaven and heaven comes into the room. And I can feel heaven in the room right now. I, um, you know, the Bible tells us that they that worship him must worship him in spirit. And I believe that we as the apostolic church are really good at that. I think that we understand worshiping, worshiping him in spirit. And I believe that we're getting better at worshiping him in truth. To worship him in truth, though, comes with revelation. Worshiping in spirit is a relational type of worship. Worshiping him in truth is a revelational type of worship. And similar to when you're in the atmosphere of someone who may be famous, but you don't know who they are because you're detached maybe from media or other things, but you could be in the midst of someone famous and not know it. It takes a revelation to know them, to honor them. And I'm thinking of a story right now of a young man named Joshua Bell. He was a famous violinist. He could fill Carnegie Hall to standing room only. He was particularly fond of Stradivarius um, violins. He had a $2.5 million violin. Well, one day he did a social project where he put on a red ball cap a green jacket, and he went and sat outside of a building somewhere and played his violin. And the entire time he was outside playing his violin, he garnered the grand total of $4.70. People came by and dropped money into his violin case. They had no idea that Joshua Bell, the night before, filled Carnegie Hall to standing room only. They had no idea that what he had in his hands was the exact violin made by the hands of the famous Stradivarius. He is, was skilled in his craft, but nobody recognized that type of person in such a mediocre context. It takes revelation to worship him in truth. And I feel that on me tonight that I believe that the worship that was here was divinely ordered of God. You are honoring him. And I believe that God is going to take it deeper before the end of this service as we get a revelation of who we're worshiping. When we get that revelation, and I don't say that to imply that you don't know who you're worshiping. That's not what I'm saying at all. I believe that there's another dimension of understanding of who we're worshiping. And this revelation hit me this year, and God has changed my worship because I have a true revelation or a deeper revelation, I should say, of who I'm worshiping. And so I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 6 tonight, verse 1. Thank you so much, uh, Bishop. Thank you so much, Pastor Dustin, for allowing me to be here with you all this week. I'm honored to be here. I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to see my friend in the room tonight, Brother Tyler Crow. He and I served together in Lafayette. A very spiritual man, and I'm thankful for him. And I honor all of you that are here tonight. You were here last night. And I believe uh, this, is, this is how I want to just go ahead. I I know you're not supposed to do this, you know, when, when people are teaching you how to preach. I just, I'm so blessed I was never taught how to preach, so I'm going to go ahead and blow what Bible colleges tell you to do. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the altar call is going to look like tonight. At the end of this service, I want you to flood these altars with a true revelation of God. And God wants to see true worship tonight, divine worship, biblical worship, in spirit, which you've already done in a deeper dimension of truth. 
I believe you're going to get a revelation of who God is, and I believe there's going to be a deeper demonstration of that worship tonight. And I believe God is going to elevate you to a spiritual plateau this evening. I think he's going to take you to a new dimension of your spirituality, of your depth. I believe God's going to do that. And again, it's not to insinuate that you're not already deep. I feel like this is a deep people. But I believe God takes us from one dimension of glory to the next. And I'm always striving for more glory. And I think God's going to do that tonight. Isaiah 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We talked a little bit about that last night. Our conversation with one another should be like these seraphim. They didn't say it to God. They said it to one another. And this was their conversation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When they cried this, the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, this is a human in that divine atmosphere. Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, because I am a man who dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. I want to minister to us tonight. Woe is me. I believe there's a revival happening across the United States where people are getting a revelation of God, how great and terrible he is, and they're truly falling in awe of this God we serve. And I believe that that's going to happen this evening. Would you just lift up your hands one more time, and would you set your affection on things above? And let's worship him right now. Worship him in the deepest dimension that you currently know with expectation that God's going to take you to another dimension of your worship, that God's going to invite you even closer to his face tonight, that you're going to, many of you will be in the divine presence of God. I believe God's going to give many of you visions tonight. I believe that God is going to place a prophecy within your hearts. I believe that callings are in this room. I believe that some of you have been on the verge of stepping into a call that you've been feeling, but you have been worried that you're not good enough for it. I believe God is going to give you the boldness tonight to step into that. I believe some of you have been asking God to operate in certain gifts of the Spirit. I believe they're going to be unlocked as you get a revelation of who you're worshiping. Father, whatever you do tonight, we give you glory. We'll give you honor. God, we're not asking you to come down in this room and do anything. We're asking you to come in this room and be what you are because I believe that you don't have to perform for us, that when you come into the room, everything that you are comes with you. So I'm asking you to just be here with us. Father, I want to recognize recognize you when you come into the room. I want to revere you when you step into the room. I want to worship you when you come into the room. God, I want to stand in awe when you come into the room. Let us do that tonight together, God, as your body, your people, in the name of Jesus. Would you give the Lord a hand clap this evening? Praise God. Praise God. You can be seated. Our world is filled with so many things within creation that impress upon us feelings of awe, and yet equally they can invoke feelings of terror. 
A lion is such a creature that through the lens of interwoven galvanized metal at a zoo, the common spectator would look upon such a beast with awe and intrigue. And as you gaze upon his enormous prowess and power, his roar could even be something that makes the crowd at a zoo cheer. My family and I, everywhere we travel, we like to take our kids to the zoo. And I like going to the lion exhibit, and I like to look upon this lion. And if you've ever been to the zoo and you've had a particularly good day, the lion is wide awake, and it's standing on its little pride rock, and it roars for the crowd. And I've been in such a setting that when the lion roars, everyone cheers, everyone claps their hands, and they know I got my money's worth today for visiting the zoo. However, remove the chain link barrier and witness the same creature in the wild, and now feelings of awe are replaced with terror and fear. And the roar that provokes cheers from the zoo holder, the, the season ticket holder for the zoo, what, what they would cheer about on a normal setting, put someone in the, the, the wilderness of Africa, and the same roar does not provoke hand claps, but it provokes terror. What is once cheers is now transformed into cries for help. And it's, I admit it's a bit of a conundrum to the human psyche to have completely opposite feelings for the exact same creature. I was reading an article, and I was sharing it with somebody today, that in this article it was talking about a Navy SEAL who was swimming in the, in the Bay Area of California. And he had been on this, he'd, he would swim every single day. He would do his daily laps as a Navy SEAL, and he was wearing his wetsuit. And one particular day while swimming, his wetsuit to a shark looked like a seal. And this shark attacked, this bull shark would attack him, and he would lose his right arm, part of his right leg, and he would take a gash out of his wrist. And the people in National Geographic that were performing the interview with him asked him the question that many of us always want to ask. Are you going to spend the rest of your life hunting down this animal? And he said something that provoked in me a thought that God would later develop in my life. This man looked at the interviewers and he said, no, why would I hunt down a shark that was doing what sharks do? I was in his territory. This is just what sharks do. Even the sun has the same opposing dilemma in that all of life is in absolute need of its sunlight. Plants need it for growth. Humans need it for vitamin D. The physical earth needs it for seasons. But get too close. The same sun that draws people to the beach, draw near to it, and that same life-giving sun is dangerous. And we are comfortable with something being both good and dangerous so long as it's within the scope of creation. So long as it is different than us, we will give it allowance to be what it is. This is a shark. This is what sharks do. We're okay with that because it's a shark. This is a lion. This is what lions do. It wasn't intended to be in a zoo, so when it's in the wild, it does what an animal does. The sun is natural. It's a created thing, and when it burns us, we don't get mad at the sun. We get mad at ourselves for being out in the sun for too long. We're comfortable with something being both good, life-giving, beautiful, and dangerous so long as it is different than us. And I'm afraid that the modern church has somehow put God into human categories and has thus reduced the severity and sheer otherness that is God. We have made him, quite honestly, just a good old boy. We have placed him as our next door neighbor. 
We often visualize him as a man mowing his yard in his Nike polo. And when we drive into the neighborhood, he waves at us and says, howdy, neighbor. And we look at him and we, when we come in on Sundays, he's got his little pail of cookies for us. And he comes and serves and says, welcome to all the guests. We're so glad you're here. Just come and be as you are, do as you please. And we put God into these human categories. He's a, he's a good, good father. He's just another guy in the neighborhood. He works part-time as a teacher but he is vanilla. He's ordinary. He's not different. He's good. He is father. He is a teacher. He's a million other things. But hear me close tonight. This God that we serve is not us. This God that we worship is so different than us. He is so contrary to us. It was his divine choice to put on flesh and come and be like us, but it never changed him being God. Just because he put on flesh did not mean that he was stopping his God-like nature. He was still different. This is why he told Mary while still in the flesh, don't come near me right now because I'm different than you. Don't take another step closer. What Moses saw at the burning bush is the same thing you are seeing, Mary. I'm the burning bush. You can't draw near to me because I'm too different than you right now. I'm going to give you the ability to draw near, but to draw near to me, you're going to have to be like me. The only way to draw near to the sun in the sky is to become like the sun in the sky. You cannot draw near to it in the flesh. You have to draw near to it in its likeness because when you are the same temperature as the sun, the temperature of the sun can't destroy you. He is good. He is father. He is teacher. But he is not ordinary. He is extraordinary. Job says this of him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak and the Almighty terrifies me because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. Daniel describes him when he says, I saw the heavens open and God came through into my atmosphere. God begins to see him on a throne with fiery flame and when he speaks, Daniel said, a fiery stream came out of his mouth and it came forth from the throne. When Daniel prayed to him, he fell as though he was dead. And when he came to himself, he said, O Lord, how great and fearful you are, God. Ezekiel saw the heavens open up, and God came into the atmosphere in a whirlwind of fire. It was completely engulfed in flame. And when Ezekiel saw his glory, he, like Job, and he, like Daniel, fell as though he were dead. God spoke to him and said to him, Rise. And before you think this is just the Old Testament... It echoes also into the New Testament. The disciple, John, described God like this. He said, his hair is white like wool. It is white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. In his hand, he holds the stars. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its full strength. And when John saw this, the Bible said he fell as though he were dead. God spoke to him and said, I am he who lives, for I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of death and the grave. Paul said this of God in Romans eleven twenty two. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. 
This is not just an Old Testament construct, but this is also a New Testament revelation that God is good, but God is also terrifying. And we need to be okay with God not being like us. And we'll give allowance to God being what he is so long as we take him out of human categories. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, what about Jesus? The Bible says God is not a man that he can lie. He is so different than us. God became a human to show us what humans were supposed to look like. The father had to clothe himself as a son to show us what he was looking for in sons and daughters. He said, look at me. This is what you're supposed to look like. And no human on the earth was showing you this. So daddy had to come down here and show us himself. But God never stopped being God when he put on flesh. I think Isaiah's experience, however, gets to the heart of God the quickest as he tells us the cry of the three seraphim as they declared that he was holy, holy, holy. And I can't help but notice, Pastor Williams, that it shows that they had six wings. And these six wings provoke in me something. I can't help but notice that with two, they covered their face in the presence of God. With two, they covered their feet in the presence of God. And with the other two, they flew to stay in the presence of God. Of the six resources that were given to the angels, they did not use all six to fly faster. They did not use all six to be more efficient. They didn't use all six to bring glory to themselves. They said, no, with two of them he's blessed me with, I'll cover my face. With the other two that he's blessed me with, I'll cover my feet. And with the other two he's blessed me with, I will use them to stay here with him. And the voice that he gave me, here's the way I'm going to use that voice. I am going to use it to say to the one next to me, he's holy. And he's not just holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. He is different than us. He's so confident contrary to us. And I began when I read this, I looked at the resources given to me. I said, God, do I use my two hands in the same proportion that the angels use their wings? Do I lift them up? Do I lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting? God, these feet that you've given me, are they swift to mischief according to Proverbs or are they beautiful because they are carrying the gospel? God, this mouth that you have given me, do I use it the way it was designed to be used, almighty God? Do I use this mouth according to your word to offer up a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of my lips? Do I use these eyes in the way they were designed to, to see into the spirit? Do I use these ears the way you designed them of the resources given to me? Do I use the fullness of my faculties to lift up the name of God? And it makes me wonder why we are a little lower than the angels. I asked God, I said, what is it that separates us from the angelic? He said, they want to stay with me, and humans don't. He said, they want to stay in my presence. Do you know why the angel that wrestled with Jacob told him, he said, let me go for day breaketh? The reason why is because it is known in Israel that the angels worship three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And morning was coming around, and this angel looked at Jacob and said, while you're down here wrestling for a blessing, I want to go and be a blessing to him. You better let me go because that's time for me to worship. I want to go and I want to lift up the creator of my soul. And I began to read all this stuff, and I said, God, I want a revelation of you because I want to worship you, not 
not just in spirit, but in spirit and in truth. I want to know the one to whom I'm worshiping. That when you walk into the room, God, nobody has to provoke me. There's not a preacher that has to tell me to do it. I don't have to wait for an ounce of music to do it. I just want to walk into the room and feel the witness of your spirit. And I want to lift up my hands and say, God, I want to be in your presence. I don't want to be just a little lower. I want to be right there with them worshiping you. There is something that comes over the people of God when we realize that when God comes into the room, something should hit us that says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Oh, how great he is. And these angels cried these words, holy, holy, holy. You see, this was a common way that Jewish authors would write when they wanted to stress something, they would repeat it. For example, in Numbers, your Bible in English says that there is a very deep pit. However, the words very and deep aren't in the original language. They weren't adding to or taking away. This is just they didn't have a lot of adjectives in the original language. So what they would do instead of saying very deep because they don't have the words deep in Hebrew, what they would do is they would say there is a pit pit. They would repeat the noun twice, telling us it's not just an ordinary pit, guys. It's a pit pit. So by repeating the nouns multiple times in Hebrew, they stress how beyond normal it is. And these angels did not say he is holy, holy. He could not just say he is holy because that title was given to the Sabbath. God is the creator of the Sabbath. So he can't be holy because he's not equal to the Sabbath. He's above it. He's not just holy, holy because those titles were given to humans. He is beyond human. And the angel said he is holy, holy, holy. When they repeated the noun three times, they were not just saying, he's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. By repeating it three times, this is called the trision in theology. What that means is he is now the standard of what is holy. That means that whatever wants to be holy must approach him because he's the definition of it. And if you're trying to be holy, go and stand in his presence and he will weigh you out and tell you if you are because he is the definition of it. And if it doesn't look like him, it's not holy. So what is the word holy? In Hebrew, it just means different. The angels cried and they looked at one another. Imagine this, six-winged beings, fiery ones is the word for seraphim. They were clothed in fire that is so different than us and those beings right there clothed in fire with six wings they looked at one another and they said he's different he's not just different he is different 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 he is so beyond everything in creation he is beyond the lion at the zoo and in the wilderness he is beyond the sun that is in the sky he is beyond the shark that was in the bay he is beyond the smartest human he is beyond our intellect he is beyond us he is unlike us he is different than us and when they cried these words it 
provoked in a mere mortal. There is a human there seeing all of this, which tells me there is a cry for us to be lifted up to a heavenly place where we see these things. And a mere mortal standing there looking at angels that were different than him with six wings, and he is in awe of them. And when he sets his eyes on the king, he says he's beyond anything I've ever seen. And what it did to Isaiah is Isaiah hit the floor, and he does something so different. He says, whoa, is me. Do you understand the weight of that statement? For prophets, when they wanted to give a negative oracle, they always prefaced it with woe unto you. When they wanted to give a positive oracle, they would always preface it with blessed are you. Jesus did this. He would give it on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are reviled for my name's sake. But Jesus would also do the negative oracle when he looked at the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, woe. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel the world to make a disciple, and you turn him twice into the child of hell that you are. This was the negative oracle. And when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he looks at himself and pronounces the negative oracle. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. That word undone, he said, I'm coming unraveled at the seams. And I had an argument with somebody recently. They were telling me they don't believe in all this emotional stuff that we do in church. And I looked at them and I said, you got a lot of explaining to do with Isaiah. We're in the presence of God. He came unglued. He came literally unraveled and said, I'm in the presence of God and I can't contain myself. Something has come over me. I, I understand if your personality is a little bit more stoic. I understand if your personality is a little more laid back and you don't want to make a spectacle of yourself. But when God comes into the room, something comes over people to where we get a revelation that says, who in the world am I to be in the same room as that great God? And here he is. And something comes over us to where we come unraveled in his presence. And he makes this statement. He says, for woe is me, I am coming undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. What's interesting about the word lips is it's the same word used all the way back in Babel and all the way back in Genesis 1. It's a language in the original Hebrew. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean language. He uses the word kolot there, language. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean language, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This was profound because hear what God does not do. God does not come to Isaiah and look at him and say, come on, get up. You're embarrassing us. Let me just, let me say this and let me get a little controversial. I've been in a lot of churches where I've heard the leadership say, we want to be seeker friendly. And I understand the heart of that. I really do. I, I get it. We want to make sure guests feel loved here. We want to make sure they feel welcomed. I understand all that, and I am a big advocate of that. I want guests to feel like this is the place where God's going to robe them in, in, in love and take care of them. But I asked a leader one time, I said, I said, I'm with you on that. I said, but I don't feel God is welcome here is what I'm having trouble with. I said, and it burdens me that you are making a sinner feel welcome, but God isn't welcome. This is a problem. You are catering more to someone who doesn't even love God yet. I said, 
you've twisted this whole thing. It's backwards. We're supposed to come into this place and say, God, I want you to know you're welcome here. And the greatest way we do that is through worship. God, I realize I'm not you and you're not me. I realize I'm not worthy. But by the cross, by you being the mediator between God and man, by you pouring out your blood, and I can approach the throne through the blood of Jesus, all of that I had nothing to do with. You did all that so that I can approach you. I'm not approaching you on my own merits, my good deeds, my standards. None of that is making me eligible to come near you. I'm approaching you because of your blood. And by approaching you, God, I am fearful of you, and I'm thankful for your blood that's covering me, or else the wrath of God would destroy me right now, but by your great blood. We're supposed to make him feel welcome, and when he comes into the room when he feels welcome, when we lift him up and we praise him, he inhabits it, and every person in the room then says, oh, this is different. This is not like what I felt at the other church. This is not what it feels like when I watch it on TV. This is not like what it feels like everywhere else. We are supposed to be different people, and we can only be different people when we get a revelation that we serve a different God. And when we make him feel welcome in the room and he comes in, the guests will be attracted to it. Stop apologizing for being spiritual. Stop worrying, okay, we got a guest in here, let's just calm down. No, I'm not telling you to show off in front of the guests and say, well, they think we're weird, so let's prove it to them. I'm talking about when God comes into the room, something should come over us where we come unraveled and we say, God, I'm not worthy to be standing here. I don't know how I came into your midst. Isaiah is just standing there and he has a vision where he's in the holy throne room of God and he thinks to himself, I shouldn't be here. I could die at any moment because I'm in the presence of the holy God. And when he provokes on himself the negative oracle, woe is me. This is when God finally comes over. God doesn't speak yet. You got to notice in Isaiah, God has not spoken. Isaiah has not heard the voice of God yet. What he does is, and he says, woe is me. God doesn't come to him and say, oh, stop being so melodramatic, Isaiah. I accept you as you are. I accept you just as you are. It doesn't say he's mercy, mercy, mercy. It does not say that he is love, love, love. It says that he is holy, holy, holy. So what does that mean? Everything I just said, mercy, his, his goodness, his love, it all comes from his otherness. He is holy and everything he shows us comes from what he is. He is holy. So when he loves, it's holy. When he judges, it's holy. When he spurs us to action, it's holy. When he cares for us, it is holy. When he joins with us in holy matrimony, it is holy. Everything he does is beyond the way we would do it. You say you love, but you're actually using what you think is love to manipulate out of somebody what you want from them. God's love isn't like that. God's love is holy. It's different than your love. When you're judging, your judgment's not like his. His judgment is still just and it is right because it comes from his holiness. And God does not look at him and say, oh, come on, just stand up. I accept you as you are, Isaiah. I'm just, get off the floor. You're embarrassing all of us around here. Stop coming unglued. You're embarrassing the angels and all the other people that are going to read your book later. You're making my Bible unapproachable, Isaiah. If you write this, nobody's going to want to do this. You're running off the guests, Isaiah. God never says those words. 
In fact, one of the seraphim, the flaming angels, come to him. And how hot do the coals of the altar have to be that a flaming angel can't touch them? He takes the tongs from the altar and he grabs one of those coals and he flies over there and he says, I'm not worthy to even touch this because God has touched it before. The hands of God touched it and we're not worthy to touch it. And he flies to Isaiah and does not anoint his head. Does not anoint his right ear, his right thumb, or his right big toe, which was customary for the priests. He comes to him, and of all things, he says, here, I'm going to touch your language. Do you understand what is happening here? He says, I'm going to touch the thing you said was unclean. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean language. He said, we're going to fix that. Because when we touch that language, you'll be elevated to a spiritual level where you can hear God now. And when he touches his lips, he says, there, your sins have been removed. Your iniquity has been purged clean. You can stand up, and Isaiah stands up in the presence of God. And for the first time in Isaiah 6, he hears God speak. Why? Because he's been made spiritual by the touch of the mouth. And when he began to change his language, he was elevated to a spiritual place to where he said, I can worship him in spirit and in truth. I have a revelation of who he really is. He's beyond me. He's different than me. I'll never be like him. I'm not worthy of him. And yet he allowed me to be here. And he allowed this, the flaming angel to come and put a flaming thing on my mouth. And now I can hear his voice. And listen to what he heard. He said, who will go for me? You have to understand there is so much profound stuff happening right here. There is, we often talk about spirit-led preaching. We hear about spirit-led singing. We hear about spirit-led living. We need to start talking about spirit-led response when preaching and singing happens. The congregation is also supposed to be spirit-led where they respond. This is what Isaiah did. He said, I hear what God just said, and I'm responding to it. When he said, who will go for me? Isaiah said, I will. I'm responding to the spirit-led speech that I just heard that I could not hear before. And by the touch of my language, I'm now elevated to a spiritual place where I can hear your voice. And I'm so thankful that I can hear it. Why on earth would I reject it if I can finally hear it for once? Why would I not do what I hear you saying? Because I wasn't worthy to hear it before. But now you've made me eligible to hear your voice. I'll do whatever you say. I'll lift up my hands if that's what you want. I will fall down prostrate before you if that's what you want. I will go to the ends of the world if that's what you want. Whatever you need for me but hear this close there is no go unless there's first a woe we have to have this humble repentance that comes over us that says oh woe is me I had this moment this year as I was mowing our grass we sit on nine acres where I'm living right now I'm taking care of my dad's property and I was living on this property and I was mowing the back half and I had about an acre and a half left and I was mowing the grass and I've been contemplating all of this I'd been praying and seeking God I said God I want to be a deeper worshiper I don't want to just be a preacher I don't want to just be on platforms I hate platforms I don't like being elevated above my brothers and sisters I don't like all that stuff I said teach me how to worship God and for the first time in 17 years of ministry on a lawnmower out on the back half, not in a church service, not while preaching. I was mowing my grass and I felt the weight of glory come over me. And I began to shake while I was on that lawnmower unprovoked. And I said, God, what is this? What has come over me? And he said, you're experiencing a piece of my glory. And I stopped and I got off the lawnmower and I just laid in the grass and I said, God, I don't know what to do with this kind of glory. He said, I want you to do what you're doing right now. You're not worthy of it, but by 
by my blood, you're eligible to be in it. And I said, God, whoever you are, whatever you are, God, give me a revelation of it. And he began to speak to me. He said, I'm not like anybody on this earth. I am unlike anything you've ever heard of. I am beyond the greatest preaching. I am beyond the greatest moves you felt. I am beyond denominal lines. I am beyond age. I'm beyond demographics. He said, I am so different than you. And I want you to understand that when you worship me, you worship me as someone who is different than anybody on the planet. He said, don't put me in your categories. Don't get mad at me. When we get mad at God, I don't know why God would do this. What you're doing is you're putting God into your category. God does what he wants because he's God and we trust it because we know it's best and he's different. And so I'm not going to get mad at God for whatever he does. I want to worship him. And when you're in the presence of God, you get a revelation of who you are. And when you get a revelation of who you really are in light of him, you're in the perfect opportunity to lift up your hands and worship him in truth. I get a revelation, God. I know who you are. You're not me. I've not seen the fullness of your glory, but I realize you're beyond anything I could ever be, and I want to worship you. When God put that on me on that lawnmower, it changed my life forever. And I said, God, every service, every day I wake up, I want to be like that six-winged angel. When I speak to my brothers and sisters, I want it to be godly conversation. When I say to one another, I want to talk about how great you are, how different that you are. God, I want to defend you everywhere I am. I want to preach this gospel. I want to speak it because, God, I've had a revelation of you, and I want to worship you in truth now. It's interesting to me that God would touch the lips, and that was the sign that he was spiritual enough to hear the voice because in Acts 2, It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Wait a minute, that's the Ezekiel vision. God's coming into their midst in a whirlwind. And then it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Wait a minute, that's the Isaiah vision. And each one, it sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In that moment, in an upper room, there was 120 people that were not worthy to be in the presence of God. They, many of them had beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus. They were with him, and in that express moment, they got a revelation. We were sitting around a campfire this whole time with God Almighty. We were sitting in the presence of the Divine One. We weren't worthy worthy of it. We had no chance. We should have died the moment he was around us, but he withheld his wrath from us in a moment to teach us who he really is. And in this moment, he's going to allow us to be elevated to that spiritual place. And that's why Paul says he has made you to sit in heavenly places. Every time the child of God speaks in tongues, there's something that happens to us to where we say, okay, God, you're allowing me to hear your voice right now. And it's coming out of my brothers and sisters around me as they speak in other tongues. It's as if heaven angels came into the room and I believe every time somebody gets filled with the Holy Ghost and every time an intercessor intercedes and every time you wake up and you speak in tongues I believe that an angel came into the room and brought a piece of heaven with them and said here we're going to bring the answer to you and God is waiting on somebody to say God what do you want me to do and he's going to say to us go I want you to go and tell people how to be spiritual go and explain to people who I am explain to them what I am Pentecost was more than just salvation it was elevation 
elevation. It was God taking us to a place in the spirit to where we could worship him in spirit, but that could only happen by the blood that happened on the cross and by the infilling of his spirit. And when we realize this, now we can worship him in truth. And so I want to invite you right now. Would you just lift up your hands? Would you begin to worship him? Would you get a true revelation of who it is that we're standing in the presence of? Would you get a weight of glory that would fall all over you? Whatever you feel led to do, if you feel to fall in the floor and begin to weep, if you feel to stand and lift up your hands, if you feel to give him a wave offering, if you want to give him the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of your lips, if you want to cry out to him, if you want to let him know, God, you're holy, holy, holy. I'm going to declare your difference in all the earth, God. I'm going to do it here in this room tonight. God, I want you, almighty, to pour out yourself on this room. Let your people feel the heaviness of your glory. Let us get a revelation of the goodness and the severity. God, we are ineligible, God, to approach you. But by your blood, you've made us to where we can come near you. God, let us not take that for granted tonight, that by the blood of your sacrifice and by baptism, God, which is baptized into your blood, we are eligible to draw near unto your face. Let us do it with fear and trembling. Let us come before you, God, knowing that you are different than us. Let us come humbly. Let us be true worshipers in this end time hour. Come on, that's it. I see glory on the face of worshipers here right now. Come on, don't let it be just mundane that you were in the presence of God. Don't let it just be like, well, we had Friday night service. It should be something honest that says, I was in the presence of God. I was in the presence of someone far greater than anybody on this planet. We would go and post all about it if we were around a famous actor or around somebody who had some notoriety. But we rarely ever talk about being in the presence of the one who created everything. Let us not take for granted the fact that we're in the presence of the one who is greatest, the one who is before for time, through time, and in time. He is everything. He was at the beginning, and he saw the end. We are worshiping, and we're in the presence of one far greater than anybody who's ever walked this earth. God Almighty is in this room. Let us not take it for granted, and it just be some mundane thing. Let it be divine for us. Let us be in awe tonight. Let us worship him with fear and trembling, and say, God, I can't believe that I get the blessed opportunity to be in your presence. I can't believe that you allow me to come near to you.